Hello, welcome to the Palladium Podcast. I'm your host, Wolf Tyvee, the editor-in-chief of Palladium. I'm joined today by Charlie, Charlie Smith. Uh, He wrote us an article, I think last year, on overcoming humanism. Uh, So he's got kind of a big, high-concept view of the future. And I wanted to bring him on actually today to talk about crypto, cryptocurrencies and the the broader ecosystem of what's going on with these sort of decentralized cryptography enabled primitives, uh, especially including what's being done with the blockchain. Uh, what does that mean for the future of human society, the future of coordination and so on? Uh, Charlie and I have, I think, different views on how this is going to work, how this is going to play out. So it's going to be a productive conversation, I think. Um, but I know that Charlie's really smart, so so uh, it's going to be good. Um, yeah, so Charlie, uh, give us a little bit about yourself, and then we can get started. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome to be here, Wolf. So, yeah, so as uh, you alluded to, I'd written the article for you guys last year, and kind of how I spend my time, I'm sort of full-time operator within crypto. I'm very much a, a crypto bull and, you know, in a sense, a maximalist, which I think will become clear, you know, in this discussion. My hobby on the side is that I really am super interested in sort of like macro level kind of historical topics, philosophy, uh, and economics as well. And so that's sort of like my, you know, thing I'm always harboring in the background and always want, you know, my work to feed into some vision of the whole that I think makes sense. And so I'm kind of doing both simultaneously. Now I'm working on a company which I founded uh, called Nifty Island. So it's a game verse which uh, connects NFTs, crypto, um, and gaming into one cohesive platform. We're about to be embarking on a really exciting journey with that. And so I just will say as a kind of selfish plug, if anyone is super interested in you know an exciting journey in that domain, reach out, especially if you're a talented dev. But anyway, yes, let's get on with the topic. Okay, cool. So so yeah, you you uh, this conversation kind of started because uh, Charlie had this thesis about how crypto was going to affect the future of human coordination, especially sort of in, you know, moving past modernity um, as kind of our, our main paradigm. And so why don't we start with just you kind of laying out your thesis, you know, what's 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 the prosecution's uh, point of view here? And then we'll see we'll see what I can do with that. And and yeah, I'll just I'll just start responding to that and we'll see where it goes. And and I can give some of my view uh, in response. Great. Yeah. So, okay. So my the-, the thesis I have here is really all oriented around the question of, you know, how human affairs are governed in general. And by that, I mean, not just how they're governed in some sort of narrow sense of like, is there a monarchy or a republic or a democracy or these sort of like high concepts, but more human life assumes certain forms. It possesses some sort of order. And how is that order determined and managed over time? That's sort of what, you know, I'm interested in. And so for me, I want to first say how human affairs seem to have been governed in the past, like pre-modernity, kind of what's the sort of default state? How has modernity complicated that picture? And then where I think crypto fits in, in this kind of very high level sort of macro view. So first, it's like you've got to look at the sort of pre-modern state. And the way I look at it is that sort of society is always running some sort of operating system. And it's very hard to put your finger on exactly what all its components are. But let's take an example and try to be concrete. So let's say we were talking about medieval England. Maybe it was, you know, sometime just after 1066. And we'd be looking at it and say, 
what is giving human life order here? Human life is predominantly rural. There's a monarchy that's in charge. The church is playing a huge role in sort of governing uh, human affairs. They're sort of sanctifying contract, legitimating rule, defining local rituals. You have kind of Wittens and local councils that are sort of uh, shaping rural life. Life is so you, you know you get the broad picture, and what ha and so this is like a situation in which human life is governed by basically this sort of social OS, which I think is like best understood at the time as being like a broadly Christian one. Christianity is touching all aspects of it. It's other things too. It's like in England, it would have been sort of Anglo-Saxon customs. It would have been Christianity and later, you know, Norman conquest changing the equation. But, you know, essentially human affairs are governed by this very complex, socially contingent set of hardware. So it's like you'd have a local uh, town where it would be about kind of like the local, uh, like the local parish, the Witten, et cetera. There'd be these institutions which shaped human life. And then the way I view modernity essentially is that a bunch of kind of self-reinforcing feedback loops are set off. And there's a lot of, there's plenty of literature on this, but there, you know, there's everything from decrease in the spread of information costs, the kind of accumulation of capital surplus around manufacturing. These are feedback loops that ultimately disrupted human life irrevocably. And we're all living in the wake of that transformation. So what you have is these feedback loops. It's almost like the sort of gray sludge case with AI, right? Where people talk about, you know, there are these feedback loops that are unleashed and they sort of demolish things unintentionally without even meaning to. And that's sort of how I see modernity is that all of the things, the social hardware that held together the pre-modern social operating system, things like the parish system, the church, you know, rural life and, you know, peasant life were completely kind of overturned. And so ever since then, we've been in a state where the sort of like social landscape from a material perspective is constantly shifting. And so human life since then has been about constant disruption to the social hardware that holds the OS, the thing that allows us to govern human society. And it kind of keeps getting disrupted. So we've had these different eras. You've had kind of like first you have this sort of 18th century, you know, enlightenment period of uh, kind of absolute sovereigns. And, you know, an attempt to kind of re-enshrine liberalism as some sort of like new governing uh, ethos. And people are desperately hoping that it's going to be permanent. And you can feel in like the 19th century, a certain sort of like angst and despair from philosophers as they see that it's not going to pan out that way. And then, you know, 19th century industrialism and mass participation in uh, politics changes the equation again. Suddenly liberalism doesn't look so good. And, you know, the world wars completely kind of like shatter that illusion that, the world will be governed by some sort of like rational enlightenment liberalism. And it becomes more about kind of like a J.G. Ballard mass hysteria, kind of mass political involvement. Uh, and, you know, for the good and, and evil that that creates, you know, on both sides. And then in addition, right, you've got so you have this situation where the kind of social OS is constantly being disrupted because the socially contingent hardware that produces it is constantly changing. And so the way I look at it is that modernity, human affairs in under the modern condition just has this problem. It just cannot govern itself. And so what I see with crypto is let's take Bitcoin as like the most simple kind of example everyone's familiar with. You know, the only hardware that's required, and I'm sure we'll have a bit of a back and forth on this topic, but the heart that what's required for Bitcoin to function really is, you know, that there are mining machines somewhere with an energy source 
which together contribute work in order to guarantee consensus of the chain. And of course, there's like an open, there's a developer community, there's like an investment community, there are other pieces. But when I look at a system like Bitcoin and I compare it to say like the church parish system, I see so much less social contingency. I see systems that are like just significantly more simple and I can imagine them persisting through, you know, immense amounts of disruption. It's like, so long as there's compute and energy, we're going to have Bitcoin. And so to me, crypto is the beginning of something, a social OS, which hardware, which has hardware requirements, which have dramatically less social contingency. And I think that's like the super revolutionary thing is a social OS, a way of governing human affairs, which is not does not rely on socially contingent hardware for its own reproduction. That's sort of like what excites me so much and makes me think that this is something that's huge. It's bigger than people actually think it is. It's like a really wild new thing. Right. Okay. So so let me um, riff on that idea a little bit and and respond to it. So where I'm seeing it is is like I, I agree with your broad kind of characterization of the overall things you know we get these various forms of progress these feedback loops they they end up accelerating the thing disrupting the foundations and so we've been over the past few centuries constantly going undergoing this process of of you know in some cases almost total disruption of the underlying social os as you're calling it and and so like you know what ground we stand on has become very uncertain and then so you're proposing this interesting idea which is that that maybe cryptocurrencies or or you know what we can do with crypto can start to provide social infrastructure that's that's sort of radically non-socially contingent. So so two things I think I think just like implicitly um, you tend to describe things or maybe you just described it in this case as as something where kind of uh, you know you compared it to kind of the gray goo like nanotech AI scenario where it's kind of gotten away on us. It's not what we intended. But I think I feel like the the progress that's happened, the feedback loops have all been things that people wanted. I, I, so I don't think this is core to our discussion, but I just wanted to, to make that note that like the way I see this, this acceleration of progress isn't necessarily something getting away on us. It's, you know, society is a very complicated thing and we're always trying to grasp it and maybe accelerating it makes it harder to grasp. But I think insofar as it's moving, it's moving because someone is making it move someone someone wants you know bigger weapons or more wealth or or you know more communication or whatever it's, it's sort of these in in some cases very mundane motivations doesn't necessarily track our overall ideologies but but I, I I do see human agency as being as being quite primary in this anyways but that's that's an aside I, I what I really want to get on is this this sort of parsing of what is crypto how socially contingent is it actually and how unique is it actually so I think on the social contingency, like like Bitcoin obviously is actually quite socially contingent, um, you know, maybe not in its in its fundamental infrastructure. You know, the fundamental infrastructure is here's here's what we need for it. You know, like you say, we need we need basically mining uh, and computers and an Internet and some energy. Right. But socially, you need to have this consensus around around Bitcoin being being sort of the the most I don't know, the best store of value or, or whatever it is that its thesis is. And so there is there is a bunch of social contingency there. Now, I don't think it's a, a highly fragile social contingency. I think part of the reason it's working and taking off the way it is, I mean, you know, let's not speak too soon. I've heard it's crashing in the past week, but 
but but you know i uh, long i'm i'm long-term bitcoin bull so but you know the reason it's working is because the consensus around it is in some sense very natural it's it just actually makes sense and and it's i think to sort of salvage your point it's like it's very robust to change there's a lot that could change in the world other than those core things like do we have internet do we have computers etc it's it's really hard to imagine kind of like displacing its axioms its axioms are quite solid um so that's that's like the degree to which it's socially contingent then there's this question of how unique is this i think i think actually that you know evaluated as a piece of infrastructure I think throughout history, we, we've had many of these things that are quite sticky. They come up occasionally. There's these innovations in how we govern human society that that actually are their axioms are solid enough that they are able to survive through incredible upheavals in almost everything else going on in society. So, you know, some of the some of the really basics, um, the idea of law, you know, much more socially contingent than Bitcoin and nonetheless extremely sticky you know we've we've stuck with a roughly um traceable tradition of law throughout this entire process of of uh early modern and modern and and postmodern and um you know some of that is is in a bad state right now but but there is this stickiness to it and i'm sure we could if we were looking for them and spent a bit of time on it we could come up with many examples of ideas that are essentially these kind of infrastructural ideas of maybe how we relate to each other or what we're doing with each other. So we can just call it generally social infrastructure, social and material infrastructure. Uh, other ones will just be ideas like roads, um, you know, vehicles that go on roads like cars, trains, these sorts of things. And, and you know, they have a big effect on society, but they're sort of limited in scope in that they they solve some particular area and and they may be quite sticky in the sense that that you know a lot can change around them but they're still going to be a good idea and i think that's a similar thing that's going on with bitcoin but basically like what if we just put crypto in that category and we say okay look what we have here is a new set of potentialities technologically um and and therefore socially and so we're building some new infrastructure and this infrastructure actually turns out to just be better than than what had previously existed in those areas and its axioms are pretty solid it's not contingent on you know the opinion of the day and and therefore this thing we can expect to stick around for a while and sort of reformat society a bunch but i think uh this is this is maybe my like deflationary case like you know i'm just sort of deflating the thesis here i'm just saying like look this is this is kind of in line with the usual tradition of we get some new capabilities they make some new things possible that are actually just a better idea very persistently we adopt those things maybe we adopt them over the long term and and, and they transform human society to some extent but they're not going to transform it totally and they're not unique uh, in in having done that, so that's that's maybe my counterpoint to this. Uh, I'd be curious to hear how you engage with that, and then we can go from there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, a couple of things I'll try to parse out of there. So, it would be you know how in what ways is crypto unique, and in what ways is it itself contingent? What is it contingent on? So, let's take the second one first. There are definitely contingencies involved in crypto today. I think some of those are going to be removed. For the most part, if you talk to a Bitcoin bull, they have quite a bit of like 
They have some pessimism around a lot of highly socially contingent, like high modern institutions. Like they're probably not super into like legacy media publications. They're probably not into higher education. I'd say the 20th century is like the high point of like, wow, immense socially contingent institutions that kind of looked invincible and then have just so quickly proven to not be, right? And, uh, and so Bitcoin does have contingencies. Um, the big one is I think most of them are kind of bearish on those big institutions and bullish on like, say, us, you know, our society remaining in a state of abundance, particularly around energy. So I think right. it's and, quite and possible. Internet. And internet and like and compute and like the sort of technical know-how that goes into maintaining those things. Um, that's something they're bullish on. So that is a contingency. And we could, you know, I think it would be a, you know, long and protracted discussion to try to determine, you know, how enduring those things will be. But I will say that uh, some of those contingencies are going to be removed. Like it's things like Ethereum, you know, if they manage to move to proof of stake, that removes like a big energy contingency. But yes, so like Bitcoin has certain contingencies, but I think the case that it has a limited number of social contingencies, especially when compared to some of those big institutions, those sort of 20th century high modernist institutions that I think we both share some skepticism towards, it, it's, it looks dramatically less contingent. And I also want to say, I liked your point that like, of course, yes, yes, there are other things that share these properties. And if I had to say, when I look out like as a kind of operator or as like a person just living and trying to make decisions in the world, it's I'm bullish on those things which feel like they are robust and, you know, have low levels of contingency. So it would be things like kinship. I'm bullish on kinship, 100%. Bullish on um, like basic transportation infrastructure, et cetera. Like there's a lot of other things in this world which are have a low level of contingency to them, right? And Bitcoin's not alone in that. And so I almost think, you know, the century we're in now is almost going to be this sort of like sifting process by which really delicate, high modernist, sort of highly socially contingent things crumble. And then these sort of like nuggets that really are high, like have, have low contingency levels are going to survive. And just to give credit where credit's due, like, you know, Nassim Taleb, anti-fragile, like he's all over this. So that's yeah, very yeah, much yeah. like a, No, and yeah. uh, right, with his his idea of like what's what sort of passes the Lindy test, right? With the Lindy effect being basically like things that have been around for a while are, are gonna be around uh longer. But I think I think you can actually take also kind of um the more kind of causal view on the thing than uh, as we've been doing here. We're looking at what are the axioms that this social form or whatever it is relies on to to survive and reproduce you know like you say kinship or or you know i would say since sort of like the the traditional mode of family life or something roughly like it it's likely to be extremely uh sticky because the fundamentals of human nature and the fact that we're dealing with a human society are also extremely sticky it actually doesn't depend a lot on you know the material conditions and so on except insofar as the material conditions enable life at all one way to think about this is it's sort of the difference between these what we're calling contingent versus what we're calling sticky uh, or what you call the nuggets. If we just analogize ourselves over to, say, science, one way to think about it is facts and paradigms. So a fact is very sticky. You know, you measure the mass of the electron. It's 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 such and such, you know, some tiny fraction of the mass of the proton. You, you know, you have a way of relating that to other quantities in the universe. That's very unlikely to change. 
it's it's axioms are very well established at this point like like what assumptions you have to make to get to the point where there is electrons they have mass and we can measure it in this way right and you know likewise even even less contingent to sort of like the sky is blue or hey look i can build this jet engine you know, very much these facts and they don't care about what you think other other areas. They're not these big synthesis synthesis points. Um, and and mean, but you also have on the other end, you have paradigms. You have these big grand synthesis things where it's like you're structuring your whole base of knowledge around these ideas and and things can change, especially, you know, in the area of applied history, which is what we're talking about here. The, you know, a social paradigm is not just a thesis about what's true for all time. It's a thesis about what's true for right now and what's true right now could change. Right. So, you know, when you're pointing to these big 20th century institutions, um, they, they are they are basically like unavoidably pegged to a particular time in history. They because they're having to synthesize across so many different domains, so many different uh, assumptions that they're making. And, and they're, it's critical to have those institutions. You can't have a society without them. But but they are inevitably very contingent on the a, a pattern of niches existing as as sort of the uh, as as your historical moment right your historical moment is like a this pattern of niches and you have these things they they fill those niches they make those niches cooperate with each other but as things change those can become very uh you know their contingency can become very apparent and and you know the axioms you weren't aware of suddenly become uh contentious and and the thing the thing sort of uh decays right. and so i can think I jump in there just on on one thing here the thank you yeah so you know i love the facts versus paradigm sort of dichotomy there and what is so powerful about Bitcoin, and I honestly think is so powerful, when you look at the ideas and things which are sort of in ascendance today, they're facts. Bitcoin is a fact. You know, you can, you, if you would like to like debate the philosophy of it, it's always like the sort of meme around like the no coiner is someone who like wants to have a long discussion with you about how it doesn't make sense. And then meanwhile, like I'm just using it and like doing stuff with it. And I'm just sort of like, okay, cool discussion. Like that's excellent. But you know, like we're actually doing it already. So you know, it's Bitcoin is like a fact. And more than that, if you think of it as like a political philosophy and like the way in which it compares to it, I think of these things as like, you know, there are old 20th century ways of doing political philosophy and older where you're just sort of trying to like assert the way the world is. And then if you think of like a, you know, 18th century sovereign, it's like Voltaire writes, the sovereign says, yeah, this seems like a good idea. And then they go and try and do it. And I understand that's obviously a caricature, but Today, I think, you know, the political philosophies and the sort of like ways of being, which are going to be in ascendance, are things that have a certain cybernetic awareness. So like Bitcoin doesn't want to argue with you, like just like like gravity. It's like Bitcoin is just like, hey, guess what? I'm a shelling point for sound money and I'm going to exist no matter what. You can write as many op-eds as you like saying that I'm useless, but it turns out that there's a sort of self-reinforcing set of uh, incentives which are leading to my adoption. Yeah, it's it's not a it's not about discourse in some in some important sense. Yeah, it, and it hacks the discourse. Like it doesn't engage with the discourse as like a persuasion game. It's just sort of like I own Bitcoin and I want it to do well, and I'm putting laser eyes in my profile picture. Like, <laughs> right, good luck, right, right, you know. Right. And you can see a lot of similarities with like the political movements that are in ascendance today. Like you take sort of the more like ver various, and I won't. I'm just going to say as many subsects of this, but like 
you know, whether it's like Trumpism or more like kind of woke political movements, they are cybernetically aware movements that are that have hold positions and behave in a way that wins. And they're really not that concerned with persuading you. <laughs> so I, I take both of those as quite well adapted as well in that respect. So so, OK, let, let's let's sort of start to project into the future. Like, I think I think um, on this question of facts versus paradigms, I think this is an interesting, uh, you know, paradigm, so to speak, for for thinking about this. But like I said, I think you inevitably need the big synthesis and the big synthesis is always going to be this kind of contingent balance of things and and you know the the things you have to build on top of that contingent balance and i think you're right in saying basically that we have this this breakdown in the current paradigm the thing a lot of it seems to be crumbling and you know, you you mentioned the next century. I'm maybe a little bit more optimistic. I think it's going to go faster than that. That we're going to get sort of a breakdown in the current paradigm and and the establishment of a new paradigm. I mean, this is of course the thesis of Palladium, right? Is is that we have a breakdown in in what we've called sort of the 20th century liberal paradigm, and we're going to get this some new thing that comes after. Let's start thinking about that. And and you know the the approach that I think you're articulating here is is the approach of like, well, we don't have to really think about it. We're just going to build, find and build the new sticky facts that are going to sort of be its ingredients. But I think inevitably you actually do have this this sort of highest layer of conscious synthesis of what's going on and and conscious strategy and figuring out from what things exist, what technologies exist, uh, what capabilities exist, what the balance of, of powers is, what is the right way to organize, where we actually do have sort of centralized choice through, through uh, you know, the inevitable existence of some kind of political system, y- you, have, um, you have choices to make. How do we constitute our institutions? How do we make our decisions? What are we relying on? Where, what bets are we making? And, and that inevitably falls again into this category of, of has to be a paradigm. It has to be something that is reaching across a, a huge fraction of what's going on. It's highly contingent and empirical to the historical moment and, and, and therefore vulnerable to historical change, but it necessary to, to navigate that that historical moment. And, and so that's, that's kind of our approach here is like, well, let's, let's intellectualize it, think about it, figure out what we can lay down the knowledge groundwork that's going to be, that's going to be helping us navigate that. That's kind of like how I'm analyzing the history and future history here. I I guess an interesting place to take this then is let's let's go beyond Bitcoin because I think Bitcoin is like an interesting piece of infrastructure, but it's not big enough to really it, it, like I think I think we're 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 looking to have this conversation about something I think a little bit bigger than that. So let's let's take maybe the bull case. I don't know if I believe this, but like the bull case on crypto in general is that you have these new forms of coordination uh, or this new tech, this technology that we've learned how to use better, which is this technology of basically cryptography and with the combination of cryptography, the Internet and and like peer to peer data replication and so on basically is enabling all these new forms of sort of shared record keeping, coordination, communication. And and so the bull case is that that actually is is a very significant technology. It's maybe I mean, some of the the crazier people will tell you that it's sort of on on the level of importance of the computer. 
um, or or maybe the factory or something. And and I don't know if I really believe that, but but that's an interesting sort of place to go in this discussion. Is like we have this crypto future. The crypto future is we've got these these cryptographic primitives. We're starting to learn how to use them. They're going to radically they're going to allow the creation of radical new extents uh, of of new social forms. Some of which are going to be very sticky. Maybe some of which are going to be quite contingent. And this will will sort of lead to large scale penetration into uh, many different areas of life. And and so I would be curious in that world, what are the things beyond money or uh, yeah, what are the things beyond money that really makes sense in that paradigm? What are the things that are being built? What are the new kinds of accounting we can do with this stuff and sort of Let's try to drill it down to things that we can understand, not just kind of, hey, this is maybe possible, but look, here's a here's a solid argument that this is going to happen. Um, so I'd love to hear your takes on on that, like sort of given this this bull case of of crypto, let's substantiate that into here are the kinds of social forms we can build on that other than other than just money. Great. So let me let me attack that in a few ways. When we're thinking about crypto, it's sort of a revolution on two fronts. Like it's fundamentally an information revolution. It's making use of the internet. It's conveying things to other people. And then it's also a revolution in incentives. And so the way I look at crypto is it's the first inform it's the first information technology that has the capacity to convey self-reinforcing incentives, at least in as scalable and in as relentless a way. As, as it is. And so, you know, yes, the, I think the internet and like, you know, all the services people are relying on there are kind of web 2.0, like have some of the same properties, but the kind of veracity and like, you know, uh, kind of power of the incentives it conveys makes it something different. And so just to kind of like, you know, I want to refer to a couple analogs before I dive into the crypto portion, because I can imagine someone saying, okay, sure. It's, you know, it's this new technology. Who's to say, why would we think it would have any significance? And so when I look back, you know, over the course of modern history, uh, with with uh, hopefully can tell with some deal of humility, I don't have all the answers here, but with uh, you know, I, I look at it and say information technology has just always been fundamentally political and has always upset and changed power structures. So like I'm sure it's almost cliche at this point, but I'll just say it real quick. You know, the printing press. Like, can you imagine the war, religious wars of of like the 16th and 17th century? without the printing press, like, no, I don't think you can. It completely changed, you know, uh, religious sects ability to kind of shape the telos, shape the wider narrative around, you know, what Christianity was, et cetera. And then when you look at these other like eras and their politics, they're defined by information systems. So when you look at like, say 20th century authoritarianism, that is the radio. You simply don't have it without the radio. It's, it's the ability, it's one way information systems with super nodes at the, at the center which are broadcasting messages to the masses and animating them to do things, right? And I use, I use the term, the masses not as like a general term, but just as like, that was the reality of that era. It was big crowds of people all listening. It's a different thing now because it's two-way. I don't even think that term really makes sense today. But, um, and now we're in a situation of two-way information flows and it has just challenged authority at every level, right? And so what information technology is looking like now, like the sort of period of you know, 2010s was sort of the anarchic era, I think, where it was like two-way information flows. No one knows how to regulate them. Things are going insane. The culture is transforming like really perceptibly fast. And, you know, and, and uh, traditional sources of power are kind of losing relevance. And it's a sort of like anarchic, you know, situation. 
And so what crypto does is it introduces incentives to the sort of web 2.0 infrastructure. And so let's like dive into like what's being done, what looks interesting. Bitcoin, we've talked about it. It's a way of guaranteeing kind of a sound money monetary policy in a way that's distributed and trustless. But the stuff that's going on in like Web3, whether it's like Ethereum or its rivals, is the thing that is like way more interesting in the long run. I think Bitcoin could play a sort of central role, but what's going on in like Web 3.0 is really what excites me. So that is distributed incentive systems that are way more high fidelity and can convey way more complex incentives and encourage more complex sets of behavior. So that means like you today, you have an exchange. So let's go one jump from money. One jump from Bitcoin would be like Uniswap. So it's a it's like the Nasdaq essentially, but the team is like 20 people. If you work in the space, you can literally meet them all and they're going to do more volume than the Nasdaq eventually, I believe. Uh, and so you look at them and you say, wow, it takes 20 people and some de uh, decentralized or sort of a open smart contracts deployed to the Ethereum virtual machine, and they can replace the NASDAQ. And then you go on from there and you say, huh, what are these experiments with DAOs? So decentralized autonomous organizations. These are like, you know, to me, as interesting as like the joint stock company was. And it's like, this is a way of pooling together people who don't know each other, who can form something almost as effective as like a kind of corporation, at least the legal kind of skeleton of one. Of course, there's more that goes into it than, than that. But they can form that in a couple button presses. They can manage a treasury together and distribute funds to basically pay people to go on missions of any sort for them, right? And uh, and so that's that's another example. You've got then now like NFTs. So you have you know artists being able to uh, raise funds and sell artwork. But let's go beyond things that are sort of like buying and selling. Uh, ultimately, I don't see a reason why the where there's any hard limit on where this can go. So like if you're able to programmatically and trustlessly pay someone to do something, I don't see why, you know, what aspect of human affairs it can't really reach. Of course, there's some islands which we expect to be separate from it. Like I'd say kinship is like one of those big ones where I, I think it's a hard firewall against this sort of stuff. But basically with Ethereum, like any mode of coordination you want to enact I think ultimately could be possible. We don't know where the limits are today, but we're far from finding them. Right. So this this basically this idea is the smart contract where you've got code running in this semi-trustless blockchain environment that enables you to at the very least move around money in programmatic ways and with all kinds of logic attached to it. And so that obviously enables um, all the things you're saying in terms of kind of running a big uh, exchange like Uniswap or, or running these autonomous organizations, essentially a corporation. Now, I, I guess the social forms around that will have to evolve as people sort of figure out what are the limitations of this when, when huge amounts of money are at stake and something goes wrong. You know, how does the legal system get involved, if at all? There's going to be a bunch of stuff there. As for kind of sh shaping every aspect of life, I think, I think again, these pieces of infrastructure, they can shape a lot of life, but they, they sort of just swap in for things and, and they reshape it. You know, they give it new capabilities, but it's not, you know, it's not existential for, for other, other things. It's like, I guess, you know, now I'm, you know, let's say total crypto future, you know, now I'm getting paid through through some smart contract instead of instead of, 
some payments uh, company or whatever right and and you know from the human side it's kind of transparent it doesn't really matter um it, now in some areas obviously it will matter there will be maybe things set up that that you know autonomous organizations or whatever that are perhaps more significant um and we haven't figured those out yet i'd be curious though what are the most interesting kind of currently existing examples of let's say autonomous organizations or or other other kind of um accounting protocols that are that are getting built up right now that we expect um things like that to to kind of come to dominate like let's the the problem in this crypto discourse is always this there's a lot of this hand waving around you know what's going to happen everyone's very bullish on it but but you try to drill down into it and 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 you sort of like you get through 10 layers of scams before you find anything interesting and and uh you know it's it's demoralizing (laughs) yes yes no i understand that so let's focus on what is happening and i can sort of bear out the implications of that and you know and so to avoid the sort of like crypto futurist sort of like hand waving like it will change everything sort of thing I'll just ask for one, you know, uh, request for charity here on in the interpretation of it. So, you know, I think like the things crypto is focused on right now are the markets it can address. And those are hum- in some respect, humble and mundane things. And so the way I really look at crypto is it's a new form and it's not going to initially present obviously to everyone as world changing. So like, I'll always like the example as like an analog of like, you know, when like the Christian faith was born in the Roman empire. It would have honestly looked like one of the silliest things to be involved with, you could imagine, right? Like just from an outsider view, I'm not saying anything derogatory about yeah, it. Yeah, it's right. It, it's sort of like just just some weird cult, that, except they don't venerate the emperor, right? It, a strange cult, which sort of has a morality and like a system of thought and a way of being, which is probably would have seemed to like an ambitious young Roman initially as one of the strangest things you could you know spend time doing, right? It would be like, why you don't want to like amass a legion and then go conquer a new land. You want to like give up all worldly possessions and, you know, talk about ideas or something. It's sort of like that is like, it would seem like almost very like maladapted, right? <laughs> and uh, and you can, and so like, so what I say with crypto too, so like Christianity, obviously like, uh, you, you know, it got a lot of traction just as an understatement. And with crypto too, I think today it's presenting as this consumer facing money thing and you know where it goes from there is like the interesting question. So let me focus on what's happening now and just asking for the charity of it's going to present as something small. And it's like what it turns into is sort of hard, is, is crazy and like interesting, but not worth sort of like pontificating about. So, all right. So like, let me use some of the DeFi examples. Like de- the decentralized finance stuff is sort of the most interesting thing going on right now that's sort of the most live. So let's take Aave, right? So it's a lending protocol. Anyone can go and in two clicks, they can deposit crypto that they have, and others can borrow from the same pool. The lending's over collateralized, so that kind of presents some limits around like capital efficiency. But essentially, like someone can, I could, t- I could go right now and take out a really significant loan. Like people will take out million dollar loans without speaking to anyone. And without, there's no customer service, there's no like office, there's nothing. And so when you think about like a lending desk or like a bank, and, the, and when you confront a bank, what you're really confronting is this like intricate tapestry of like social contingency really. So it's like, you know, the banker has to present as like a, as a well-mannered person that like is reliable, et cetera. You know, the office has to be old enough that you're like, kind of like, this is still going to be around, or at least the brand has to be old enough that you trust it. It has to be FDIC insured. 
you kind of like, if it hasn't been around for a while, you're a little bit like, you consider it dubious. Like there's a whole bunch of like intricate things that go into making a bank. And this is, and for good reason, people don't make banks anymore because those things are really hard to do and they take a lot of time. Uh, you don't just get to kind of come out of nowhere there. Um, and so there's very few new entrants in like the US banking system. There are some, but the broader picture is like kind of stagnation, right? And big players dominating. Now with Ave, it's literally a guy named Stani and his and his friends, you know, he works with and he deployed some smart contracts to the internet. And now there's, I think, what is it? What are we at? 7 billion or something in uh, total value locked. And so you take something like a lending desk and I think it's easy to underappreciate how difficult it is to start something like that at, that, at, a, at a significant scale. And then he just did it purely with code and a website and Twitter. And like, that's it, you know? And so there's many examples like that that are interesting. What's the control on that lending? Like, you know, when, when a bank is lending, obviously one of the most important questions is, are they going to get paid back? Is there collateral? It, how, how does that work? Yeah, let me give you a sense of like, kind of the average, like, well, I, you know, I don't know who the average user is because it's all kind of pseudonymous. The, let's just say what I imagine like the kind of user story to be and then, you know, how it works. So, you know, you're someone who holds a bunch of crypto and you want access to some like USD kind of like stable coins for whatever reason. You have some other investment you want to make. Maybe you want to buy groceries or like real objects in the real world for whatever reason. And, uh, and so you go and you like deposit your Ethereum and you deposit more Ethereum than the value of the stable coin you're going to be taking out. And so this is undeniably a less capital efficient version of what is done in the analog world today. It is like, we're still at the dial up level here. Like we're early. And so what they do is if I put down like, you know, 200 grand ETH, I can't remember what the average over collateralization ratio is right now, but it's like, say I put in 200 grand ETH and I take out like hundred grand of stable coins. The ETH serves as collateral. And so if I don't pay back the stable coins, I'm going to lose the ETH. And uh, and that, that's sort of the idea. And so it's all over collateralized. That's how you get around the sort of issue of not knowing who's doing it. And the idea here is that like, I, I'm very bullish that like everyone's behavior on the blockchain is basically like pseudonymous, but completely legible. And so over time, you're going to have these wallet addresses with like decades long histories of taking out loans and repaying them. And I'm, I, I, I'd be very surprised if people aren't able to make these things more capital efficient over time. But that's basically how it works. They're over collateralized loans. People are depositing volatile crypto, typically volatile coins, and then taking out something stable they want to use for something. That's usually what's happening. Right. Okay. So, so this, isn't, uh, this isn't yet fit for, you know, I have a stable job. I want to buy a house. You know, I need a I need a mortgage like that. That'll be a real killer app, right? If if you can if you can kind of take out a take out a mortgage on the blockchain, but but it sounds like you know you have to already have the assets. I'm curious what use cases. You know, you, why would you take out a loan instead of just sort of selling your crypto, or is it like you want to hold the crypto at the same time? And in which case, kind of what's what's going on on the other side of that transaction? Like is someone sort of taking the other side of that bet somehow? I, I, yeah, I mean, I mean, not to not to like get too sidetracked into this, but I think I think it's really illustrative to to dig into these details. Let, no, let's do it. I think I, I, I totally agree. And I, and I like the inclination of saying, let's talk about the specifics and not the sort of like vague future things. And I'll just do my best to bear out the sort of implications of it. So the way to view it is. These are over collateralized loans. The white reason people are taking them out generally is they're holding some asset as an investment, like let's say Ethereum, just as like a kind of obvious example. And they have something they want to buy, something they want to do. 
and uh, they don't want to liquidate that position to do it. They want to say, I want to remain long ETH. I want to keep my ETH position, but I really want to be able to, you could buy a house. It is totally, totally conceivable that you could buy a house, but you're, you're not going to be able to take on as much leverage as you're able to with a mortgage, right? Which has all of these like, again, yeah, like very socially contingent guarantees and whatnot today. But so today it's like, so I hold a lot of ETH. I want uh, you know, some amount of stable coins or whatever to go buy something and I'm borrowing them against my ETH. And so that's kind of what it is. It's just like people who don't want to liquidate their investment and they want to go long something else. And I think you'll see over time, you know, that over collateralization ratio is going to fall. And eventually it's going to be like, okay, you put down, you know, 10,000 ETH and you get out $100,000 of stable coins. I think we're really on track to do that. I mean, Heck, I, I'm definitely, you know, I think the people who would really know would be like the Ave guys and the compound guys who are doing this, but that's sort of my take. Uh, and, and there's many other examples I could dive into here. Like we go back to Uniswap and I'm really sticking with the big DeFi ones that people really use because I think they're just sort of the most relevant. But you look at Uniswap and you say, look, when you run a normal exchange, there's just so many pieces to it. There's a centralized order book. There's a big staff of people managing it and looking at it, making sure that the trades are going through right, addressing glitches, et cetera. You have like market makers providing liquidity who all need to be KYC'd and sort of need to go through like a formal vetting process to provide liquidity on the exchange. Uniswap is literally just smart contracts. And then, you know, you have people staking crypto to provide liquidity and they're willing to take either side of the trade. And then people trade with it. And it does, I mean, huge amounts of volume now. I mean, we're talking like billions and billions a week, which is, you know, still less than like, you know, these big mainstream exchanges. But if you look at the trajectory and you think it holds up on any reasonable growth curve, it's like, that is uh, not a trend you want to bet against, in my opinion. Right. Okay. So this this is starting to make more sense. Um, so let's say I have, you know, just try to make this more, more kind of like concrete and practical. Let's say I have you know, a million dollars in Bitcoin. I'm sitting there thinking, well, I want to buy a house, but I don't want to sell my Bitcoin because I expect it to keep going up. So I, I take out a big loan uh, on the blockchain and using, using let's say, this, this protocol. I mean, maybe it's got a bad interest rate or whatever, but the bank won't lend to me because all I have is crypto or something. So I, I take out a, this loan and then, you know, I'm paying it back over some number of years. And meanwhile, my my Bitcoin is still accruing value. Like th that's sort of the value proposition from the, the, the loanies uh, perspective. D d so it does it work with Bitcoin. That's the question, because Bitcoin is, is not is not an Ethereum token, right? Totally. Yeah. So Bitcoin, it's not like a fully kind of Turing complete chain. You can't, you know, ask the Bitcoin blockchain today to do things which are kind of like involve complex smart contracts. That being said, it's a, it looks to me like a solvable problem. So you've got a few different things going on. You have people bridging both trustlessly and kind of semi trustlessly towards Ethereum. So like you represent your Bitcoin on another chain. And then you can do everything that we talked about with Bitcoin or, you know, and there's also people working on, you know, uh, smart contract platforms that refer and settle and rely on the Bitcoin chain for consensus. So you kind of have a bunch of things going on there and people are using like people are today using Bitcoin with smart contracts, but they're just doing it on other chains. Um, and so. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. It's not necessarily done on the Bitcoin chain, but it's but you can you can stake your Bitcoin or or whatever. And and I guess I guess the the infrastructure will will sort of mature over time theoretically. So for for the other side, you know, let's say I'm the guy who's you know I have I have a million dollars in in 
USD cash and I want to get some interest on that. So I loan it to someone who has, you know, put up Bitcoin collateral through this through this system. The the it's sort of obvious, you know, why you might want an interest rate on your cash. What's what's less obvious to me is is what happens if both Bitcoin goes down and the other guy can't repay. Yeah. So the way it works, and and man, I should get. I think I should get paid by out there <laughs> at this point. But the uh, the way it works uh, with them is that so you've got like you're in their case you're like you're let's say you're doing a loan. The loan is collateralized with like volatile crypto, and someone's taking out USD, and there's the potential that the collateral depreciates in vol in, in, in value. The smart contract basically closes the loan out if the value of the collateral falls below a certain threshold. So people are liquidated. Oh, so people people do get liquidated. Oh, yeah, that that, that definitely can, that definitely can happen. So it's like the, the loan will get closed out, people will get whatever collateral, you know, you know it's worth the end, but it's basically yeah, people can be liquidated for sure. I don't know, I've never actually had it happen to me, so I'm not it's like one of these things I have less of like a tactile thing with, but like yeah. Okay. So, but but I'm I'm convinced here that there's there's at least something real going on there. Like there is there is something being enabled here in terms of someone's able to loan out money. Now, I from my understanding, the interest rates are pretty high in this ecosystem because I guess liquidity problems and, and yeah. Can I speak to that real quick? Because the, the reasons for those interest rates are quite interesting. So, like, if you're looking at interest rates and you're thinking like, why are interest rates high or low? You know, I'm not a macroeconomist, but my basic like view is that. It's about like how scarce is money, you know, like how much are people willing to pay for money? And then what's the value of money? Like what can it be deployed to do? And if money's scarce and there's a hell of a lot to do with it, then people are going to pay out the nose to, you know, borrow it, right? And uh, when you look at the crypto economy right now, I'd say like almost consider it like this sort of non-geographically specific economy that you could almost consider like Ethereum or something like a country where it's like it has an economy, it has services that exist within it. And currently, you know, of course, this is like on the back of other, you know, big macroeconomic trends and a sort of like loose monetary environment, loose monetary policy environment that we're in right now. But the crypto economy is booming and, you know, people want to deploy any money in it that they can get their hands on. And so, like, you basically have a situation where if you're willing to lend out stable coins like USD, introduce it into this like network people are really willing to pay high interest rates for it because there's just so many productive uses of that capital today. Like there's just every, like if you're in crypto right now, it's like every week there's another project that's starting that's doing something that seems like quite interesting. Um, and uh, and yeah, and so that's kind of, that, that's sort of okay. where that comes from. So this is starting to make make some sense. So we have we have some immediate use cases for this decentralized finance stuff. There's useful things being done that are not just scams. I know there's a lot of sort of, what I would classify as scams on these platforms, um, but but it sounds like there's some non-scams, and that's that's the exciting part, really, because that's the thing that's going to scale a lot over the long term. Things that are actually useful can scale a lot over the long term. So let's let's take this sort of, you know, for the purposes of this discussion, we'll take the the decentralized finance uh, bull case for granted that this thing is going to be big and important. As a piece of infrastructure, it's going to maybe reformat how we think about finance. I guess there's questions of, you know, how would that start to look if you've got hard assets? Like, can you trade commodities? Can you trade uh, legal corporations uh, on on that, like like stock, basically? That's an interesting question. I'd, I'd love to hear if there's any if there's any way that that might happen. But then, but then also, 
at some point I do want to get back to this this question of the big the big future, right? What is the what is the reason that we can expect this to go uh, much further, or can we expect it to go much further? Where where can we expect it to go much further? Um, I'd love to sort of shed some light into that. But but first, just kind of on this decentralized finance thing, how far can that go? Can we get commodities and stocks and such onto the the blockchain, or is that is that going to be sort of an uncrossable gulf? Kind of ha- actually integrating with the with sort of legal ownership. Um, I'd love to love to hear what you have to say. So yeah, yeah, definitely. I'd say you know it's definitely not a hard limit, and that limit has yeah that kind of line has already been crossed. You know, the, the, there are going to be. I think it's going to move slower just because it's almost like if you think about like we've been talking about social contingency. These different offerings have like sort of a minimum viable level of like social contingency that you can kind of that they require. And so if you're trading like ETH for Bitcoin you're in like a radically low social contingency sort of environment. It's very, it's a playground, you know, for, for software developers, they just, they're like, great. We have an open sandbox to build whatever we want. And we don't have to, we literally don't have to talk to another human being to make this happen. So if you're talking about representing real assets, like there are already equities that are represented on chain, there's gold, there's us dollars, which is the, you know, I would go as far as to say, like maybe the most successful and popular like crypto product in a mainstream sense, because in many countries, like people are utilizing stable coins as like a sort of sovereign dollar store outside of the like banking infrastructure that they have. And, and which again speaks to the social contingency point, right? It's like we live in this part of the world where those socially contingent factors were, you know, done in a way that is in like many respects like correct. And and that's not to say it's a pure choice, but we we sorted it out over here. Things were sorted and the banks work, uh, more or less. And uh and in other parts of the world, like people are desperately looking for low social contingency money stores, right? There's like a huge market for it. So yes, I think it can go to like many other assets and there are projects doing that. It's just going to move slower though, because it has to interface more with like traditional regulatory structures. It's, you know, there's still like, you can basically, you can make settlement of these things trustless. You know, you can make it so that I can trade, at, you know, Tesla stock for like USD in a way that I have no risk of like the settlement on the trade between the counterparty and I, you know, falling through. But ultimately, like someone has to be the bearer of the Tesla stock or the gold or the oil or whatever's being represented. Yes. And, and you have to be able to cash out. Most definitely. So you're removing one layer, but not everything's going to be removed there, I would say. Right. So so it's sort of like uh, the chains can sort of be this high efficiency layer on top of the legal stock apparatus where... Uh, you know, it, like it's essentially sort of a, a derivative platform in, in some in some sense where, you know, you're trading around these sort of abstracted um, securities. I, I, I know uh, the SEC is touchy about the use of the word securities, but but basically you're trading around these securities that 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 are somehow grounded in in legal ownership of stock and uh, the legal s- exchanges or sort of uh, old, old style exchanges don't actually have to touch the thing until until you get to this moment of of wanting to settle out and and get your stock in in paper or or on Nasdaq or whatever. Okay, so that that's again, this is starting to make sense. Um, let's let's project this forward. How far do we think this can go into let's say areas beyond finance? What what sorts of large scale future social effects can we expect thanks for listening we've now reached the end of the first half of the podcast the second half is available on our patreon 
you can sign up at palladiummag.com slash subscribe. It usually gets better in the second half, so you don't want to miss it. This project wouldn't be viable without your support, so we hope to see you soon.